Chapter six of McCabe's Art of Ventriloquism and Vocal Illusions. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lawrence Trask, Mount Vernon, Ohio, InterfaceAudio.com. McCabe's Art of Ventriloquism and Vocal Illusions by Frederick McCabe. Chapter 6 The Man in the Chimney and the Man on the Roof. Speaker Hello, is anybody here? Voice Hello. Speaker Where are you? Hello, I'm here up the chimney. What are you doing in the chimney? I'm putting a clean collar on. You've selected a strange place to put on a clean collar. Not at all, it's a very suitable place. Oh, no doubt it's suitable enough up there. Well, come down. All right, I'm coming down. Take care. I know, I've been here before. Are you here now? I'm here now. Up to this point, the learner will be careful to gradually increase the volume of the ventriloquial voice and decrease his own. At the last phrase, stoop down toward the mouth of the chimney and say, I'm here now, out of the corner of the mouth, explosively at the same instant starting back as though surprised. Hello, why, you startled me. Did I? Yes, you did. Get up a little higher. I don't like you to be so near. A little higher? Yes, a little. Well, there, will that do? No, a little farther. And so on, until you fix the tone of voice you find best suited to your powers. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I have here a rather comical fellow. You'll find he's got a peculiarity that makes his conversation very droll. He cannot give a straightforward answer to any question I ask him, and I have to fence him a good deal. I say, hello, I'm going to ask you a few questions. Are you? Uh, yes, will you answer them? Will I what? Will you answer my questions? I don't know, but just don't try. What is your name? What'd you say? There now, why didn't you answer my question? What did you say? I said, what is your name? Oh, did you say that? Yes. Oh, I didn't know you said that. Well? Well. Well, you haven't told me yet. Told you what? I want to know your name. My name? Yes, come now, answer my question. What is your name? Do you mean my Christian name? Oh, I don't care. Say this with your face to the audience. Throw your hands apart in an appropriate gesture. I don't care. And no more do I. In this phrase there is the labial sound M, which will necessitate the turning of the face from the audience, unless the learner can pronounce the word name as neighing without facial movement. Speaker. Well, never mind. I will call you Bill. Will that do? That'll do. Now, Bill. Well? Can you do anything to amuse the audience? What'd you say? Don't say that. What shall I say? Repeat my words so that I know that you've heard the question. I say what you say. Yes. All right, go on. Now, can you do anything? Can I do anything? Yes, to amuse. To amuse? Yes, the audience. The what? The audience. What's that? Now, Bill, I think you are prevaricating. You think I'm what? I think you're prevaricating. No, I'm not. I'm sitting down. Well, as the lawyers say, I'll put the question in another form. Can you do anything that's amusing? Amusing? Yes. Why, of course I can. Well, what can you do? What can I do? Yes, what can you do that is amusing? 
Oh, I can eat and drink and swear and... Uh, oh, no, I, you must not do that. We would not be amused at that. I would. Oh, I dare say you would. Now, can you sing a song? Can I sing a song? Yes, can you sing a song? Well, I don't know. You don't know? No, I do not. Well, go on and we'll try you. You'll not try me if I know it. Why not? I was tried once and I didn't like it. Who tried you? Judge Smith. Name some well-known judge. But I didn't mean that. He did. What did he try you for? For making a speech. What? You make a speech? Yes, I did. What did you say? I said not guilty. Was that your speech? That's all I said. Well, that was a very short speech. He gave me ten days for saying that. I think it will not be safe to go any further and to the antecedents of this fellow. I'll get someone else to talk to, turning to the chimney. Have you got anybody with you tonight? I got Jem here. Where's he? He's on the roof. Do you mean to say that he is up there? He's on the roof, I know that. Will you call him or shall I? You'd better call him yourself. He wouldn't hear me. Very well. At this point of the dialogue, I have always managed to produce a good effect in the following simple manner. Look up to the ceiling and down at the spot where you are standing as if measuring the distance you are about to throw your voice. Move a step or two as if selecting the best point to speak from. Place your hand to the side of your mouth as if to shout up to the man on the roof. Be careful to place the hand that will hide your lips from your audience and at the very moment they fully expect you are going to shout up to Jem on the roof, speak out of the side of your mouth next to the chimney saying are you going to call him say this quietly with a full tone at the same moment quickly turn your face to the chimney as though you were interrupted and started saying what do you say though this may read as a very simple manner the effect will be found to be very good if it is done easily and naturally continue the dialogue thus voice quietly are you going to call him speaker going right to the chimney what voice loud and impatient are you going to call him i said speaker I, I was just going to call him then you'll have to call him louder he'll not hear you is he deaf no he's hard of hearing oh i'll make him hear me here repeat the action of looking up and placing the hand to the mouth as if about to shout and say as before out of the corner of the mouth next to the chimney voice he'll not hear you if you don't call him loud i know cause i called him the other night and he didn't hear at the first words of this sentence, turn and look towards the chimney. Keep up the voice, gradually dropping the tone, and speaking indistinctly, as though Bill were talking to himself. Speaker. You mustn't interrupt me. I was just going to call him when you began to. I was only telling you to call him loud. Well, don't tell me. But listen, I'm going to call him now. Loud? Yes. He won't hear you if you don't. Be quiet. Jam. He won't hear that. Now will you keep silent? I was only telling you. If you tell me again, I'll, I'll not tell you any more. Mind you don't. Well, he didn't hear that. Never mind. I'll call him till he does hear. All right, go on. Speaker coming forward and raising the face as though about to speak to Jem. Voice, quietly. I knew very well he wouldn't hear that. Look around as this is said and then turn to the audience and say, Well, now, he's had the last word. Perhaps he'll be quiet for the man on the roof remember that this voice is only effective on the vowel sounds the consonants are only suggested i have so arranged the dialogue that everything jem is supposed to say is repeated by bill in the chimney or the ventriloquist himself 
the effect of this arrangement is that the audience have not time to doubt as to the words though they only hear the vowel sounds in the suppressed voice if the ventriloquist finds that he cannot satisfactorily speak in the voice of bill in the chimney immediately after jem on the roof he should turn his face to the chimney and ask bill saying what does he say and while his face is so turned speak out of the side of the mouth explosively in the voice of bill the sentence which jem is supposed to have uttered dialogue between the ventriloquist jem on the roof and bill in the chimney speaker jem jem hello speaker jem bill oh there he is don't you hear him speaker turning to the chimney uh, no did you oh yes i heard him all right then he is there i knew he was there be quiet now once more jem hello where are you oh i'm on the roof don't attempt to sound the f only suggest it where on the roof he says here the word on can be spoken before turning the face from the audience and suit the action of turning to the chimney so that you can say roof very distinctly bill he says on the roof that's what he says speaker uh, i thought he said that bill i knew what he said before he spoke here the words before and spoke require the action of the lips therefore turn towards the chimney just in time to say the words while the face is from the audience speaker now bill will you be quiet bill i was only telling you well don't tell me but be quiet all right uh, jam i can't get down what do you say i can't get down uh, he can't get down be careful to say this quietly for as jam is supposed to be shouting from the roof there would be no effect of contrast or of distance if bill shouted also the voice dying away in the distance speaker well i suppose you can get up now bill you want me to go speaker yes but i want to know you're safe so you must shout good night all the way bill shouting good night all the way <laughs> no i don't mean that oh, you said that yes but i mean i want you to shout good night and keep shouting until you are a long way off oh i know well get along good night good night good night good night this is very effective climax and in a parlor among a small company may be productive of the greatest astonishment to me it is the easiest of all ventriloquial effects and i have frequently walked from the window or door into the middle of a group looking straight into their faces while they heard the voice apparently dying away in the distance turn your face from the audience as though you had forgotten them and act as though you were really in earnest in your parting words with bill under these circumstances all necessity for concealment of the movement of the lips is dispensed with and the only thing to attend to is the character and the tone of bill's voice before turning your face to the audience be careful to graduate the assumed voice until you have it well under command at the spot where the cluck is made in the act of swallowing practice to shut off the sound at this place make the voice explosively on the sounds ut eit to represent good night extend the stomach at each good night of the distant voice gradually raise the pitch as you suppress or shut off the voice all this requires no facial movement whatever but good acting will very much heighten the effect
the english railway porter from the repertoire of the ventriloquial mimical and musical entertainment begone dull care character in dress the porter mythical mimical polyphonic or ventriloquial voices fat little man fat old lady jocular young man asthmatical old man intoxicated man yankee chaffer he who desires to present this sketch for the amusement of an audience should begin by committing to the memory of his ear the various voices of the above characters the following description of the voices which i use may be of service but it will be better for the amateur to invent and arrange the voices for himself fat little man fat people never have deep or big voices use a little voice with a moderate pitch for this character fat old lady falsetto voice rather high-pitched jocular young man hard loud thin voice moderate pitch I produce this voice explosively against the front of the palate immediately above the upper row of the teeth. Asthmatical old man. Deep voice produced at the side of the mouth in the cavity formed by the cheek. The prolonged cough will be explained later. Intoxicated man and Yankee chaffer. These are simply mimetic voices and may be left to the mimetic instincts of the performer. Song. Railway station tune the king of the cannibal islands ever since the world began there never was nor never can be found such a very useful man as an english railway porter fat little man hello hold on porter hello somebody's sure to come late now then look sharp this way fat little man am i in time porter just in time get in here fat little man in here porter yes look sharp porter there is no room here plenty of room stop where you are now then ma'am where are you going we've got three trunks four bundles an umbrella a flat iron a gridiron and two children get in with the children i'll see to the luggage will you see to my luggage yes ma'am get in quick i won't go without get in quick jocular young man hello porter porter turning to another part of the train hello now uh, where are you going sir jocular young man i say porter give us a match porter a match sir uh, this is not a smoking carriage you mustn't smoke here jocular young man never mind sir right. give us a match old fellow porter holding out his hand for gratuity there's no smoking allowed nor any tips to the railway servants pocketing the tip thank you sir right so ever since the world began there never was nor never can be found such a very useful man as an english railway porter and when the train is pulling up at a station on the line to stop and the passengers want to know how far they've come and wonder where they are the porter shouts the name of the station but you only hear the termination on that point you never get information from the railway porter spoken we wait at the station till the train is coming on then as the cars go by we kick up a row and shout at the doors and windows rings the bell and shouts a jumble of incomprehensible words puts down the bell and says then they know where they are then we have to go and collect the tickets now that's a nice job 
We can go through the cars like you can here. We have to wait till the train stops at the station. Then we go and open the doors and call for the tickets. An English railway train is nearly all doors, and at every door there's sure to be a fidgety passenger who wants us to stop while they talk to us and make complaints and blah, blah, blah. All tickets ready, please. All tickets. Fat little man. Here, Porter, I was put here in a hurry. Well, sir. Well, there's too many people here. I, I have no room. No room, sir. You've got a seat. Yes, but I'm sitting on this lady's hoops. Well, never mind that. If the lady don't mind it, you can't hurt the hoops. No, but they're hurting me. Can't help that, sir. Tickets, please. Fat lady. Porter, is my luggage all right? Porter. Uh, what luggage have you got, ma'am? Fat lady. Well, I've got three trunks, four bundles, an umbrella, a flat iron, a gridiron, a piece of string, and two children. Your luggage will be in the van. And where's the van? The van's behind. I never see a van behind before, and I won't go any further without my luggage. Oh, I'll see that you'll get your luggage, ma'am. Will you promise that I get my luggage? Yes, ma'am, I promise you. Well, I have an action for breach of promise if I don't get my luggage. All right, ma'am, all right, ma'am. Tickets, please. Asthmatical old man, angrily. Here, porter, put your nose in here, will you? Well, what's the matter here? Well, there's three young men smoking, and I'm choking. Well, I'll soon stop that. Here, I say, young man, you mustn't smoke here. There's no smoking allowed here. Jocular man. We wasn't smoking allowed. We were smoking quietly. Oh, that's only a joke. You mustn't smoke tobacco. Very well, then. We'll smoke the old gentleman. He's half on fire already. Porter, did you hear that? Uh, yes, sir. Well, that's the way they've been chafing me all along. It's very unwrong of them. I'm so asthmatical, the smoke irritates my bronchial tubes. It's a shame of them, but never mind, sir. I'll stop them. What? I'll stop them, sir. You'll stop my bronchial tubes? No, sir. I'll stop their smoking, sir. I say, Porter, could you stop his cough? I can't help my cough, sir. Of course not. You know he can't help his cough. Well, he never stops once he begins. I can't help it, sir. When my cough, <coughs> when my cough comes on, <coughs> young man. Oh, he's going to cough now, Porter. Well, he can't help it, young man. There he goes, Porter. Leave him alone, young man. Shake him up, Porter. No, no, leave him alone, young man. Oh, he'll never stop now. He's begun. The prolonged cough should be produced without using the vocal cords. Perhaps it will be better understood if I say avoid using that part of the throat which lies at the place familiarly called the Adam's apple. The learner will invariably begin by straining this delicate part of the vocal organs, for with a fresh unused voice this is the part which is most used, and this is the part which should be least used. For though this is the quickest and easiest way to produce false vocal effects, it is the quickest way to produce fatigue and hoarseness, and ultimately permanently injure the voice. The cough should be produced at the side of the mouth by drawing back the tongue and exploding the sound against the palate. Intoxicated gent. Uh, I say, Parler. Porter. Uh, yes, sir. Well, I, I want to speak to you. Uh, what do you want? It's all right. Uh, yes, but what do you want? I want to know <coughs> how far we are from the next refreshment station. Uh, you don't want any more refreshment, I'm sure. Don't I? Uh, I think you've had enough. What's that? If you take any more drink, you'll have too much. Well, too much is just enough for me. Uh, we've gone past the next refreshment station. 
Have I gone past it? Yes, sir. Let me out. I'll go back. Uh, no, no, and no. Give me your ticket. How far are we gone? I should say you're about half gone, or a good deal more. Yankee. Say, Porter. Porter. Uh, yes, sir. Yankee. Can you tell me, is this train going on or standing still? Porter. I don't know what you mean by such a question as that, sir. Well, I guess you go so slow you don't know the difference. That's only your Yankee chaff, sir. You'll not be long going now. I'm in no hurry now, or I should get out and walk. All right. Give me your ticket, please. I guess I got a ticket and a half. Who's this half ticket for? For this young man here. It won't do. Half a ticket won't do for him. He's not a child. Well, I know he isn't now, but he was when we started. We've been so long coming, he's growed. <laughs> All right. Rings bell. Finale. So ever since that ventriloquism may be some time or other of some practical service to the possessor, may be gathered from the following circumstance. When I was a boy of some fourteen years of age, I remember especially that on one occasion in my father's house, after enjoying myself well, boy-like, at an evening party given by him, I went to bed after the company had broken up, and could not for the life of me fall asleep. As I lay in bed tossing about, I became gradually convinced that something very unusual was going on below stairs, for I distinctly heard footsteps, now here, now there, until I got at last into such anxiety and fear that I could not remain motionless any longer. Getting out of bed, I felt an irresistible impulse to get nearer to the place where the thieves were, for such I afterwards found them to be. Having crawled down stealthily by myself, I put in force, in earnest, what I had been already practicing, and began a conversation raising as much of a hullabaloo as I could of several voices. Here they are! Bring a light! Bring a light! There they go! Shoot em! Shoot em! The thieves were so taken aback at being so suddenly discovered that they immediately decamped, and as the row I made roused the house, I recollect well, as the lights appeared, seeing one slouching villain hurrying past a door partly encumbered with the end of a tablecloth, which was being dragged after him. After that affair, I practiced more diligently than ever, when alone, whether in the house or in the open field, or rambling among the country lanes. And well I might, for I had impulse sufficient. Another incident in my experience illustrates somewhat the astounding effect ventriloquial illusion has upon the unsophisticated, when it startles them in all its telling force by the circumstance that no knowledge or previous intimation of it had ever been gained. A few years ago, while traveling in Ireland, I had a predilection for pedestrianism. I walked from town to town, over the hills and through the valleys, during the whole of one year. On the occasion I speak of, I had approached to within a mile of the town of Listowel, in County Kerry, where at the time a fair was being held, and on the way I met a man riding on a donkey. After the usual greeting, he stopped and entered into a little gossiping conversation with me. The donkey stood mute and passive, as only donkeys can, while I rested one hand on his neck. Unpremeditatedly I began making his head, or rather his nose, wag from right to left. Suddenly a whim struck me, and I asked the man, who was a born wag, by the way, "'How old is your ass?' "'Rising four years,' was the reply. At that instant, by an imperceptible action of my hand which was resting on the donkey's neck, I moved his head towards me and I uttered an ejaculation in the voice which is described by using the side of the mouth with the face in profile. He's a liar! I'm nineteen! 
apparently thunderstruck i jumped back in a well-feigned surprise while the good man dropped off like a shot with a mercy on us that ass spakes the effect was ludicrous in the extreme for the poor fellow had a comical look of astonishment better to be imagined than described how he did quick when the ass spake effect of course is everything especially with a ventriloquist but even apart from any ventriloquial illustration there are other curious vocal illusions which create no little amount of astonishment there is one perhaps not so generally known as it might be for it is an agreeable piece of innocent foolery and very entertaining in its way two persons assist one of whom standing upright before the company with his hands behind him acts as a dummy or pantomimic orator while the other stooping behind him inserts his hands through the dummy's arms and commences energetic action with them in the laying down the law style in a voice totally inappropriate to the pretended orator who by the way must be mouthing if not uttering the real speaker gives a burlesque version of some well-known quotation such as for instance that in holmes play of douglas my name is norval on the grampian hills my father feeds his flocks a frugal swain etc etc the effect is irresistibly droll and sure to gratify the company especially if there be plenty of young folks in it if the actors in it be a little removed from the audience the illusion is extraordinary and partakes of a ventriloquial character which however it is not because the illusionists for such they simply are are merely acting their separate parts in the same place and there is no speaking inwardly this sort of dummy acting is of no uncommon occurrence in france and is indeed more general in theatres than many would imagine there are many instances where the real speaker or singer is behind the scene i call to mind a remarkable instance of this kind of substitution wherein the illusion was perfect to the audience it occurred at the prince's theatre in manchester a theatre that according to many travellers has some reasonable claims to be ranked as one of the prettiest in the world the acoustic properties being excellent it was the first season after the opening of the theatre and shakespeare's tempest was presented on the stage with all those scenic effects and completeness of detail which have rendered mr charles calvert's name so well and deservedly known in more recent shakespearean revivals the part of caliban was being sustained on the occasion by mr cathcart the elder cathcart since deceased who played the part with great brusquerie and with a voice moderately deep and full though somewhat rough and unmusical when it came to the end of act two where the howling drunken monster has to sing i was standing at the wings and was at once struck with astonishment to hear the refrain ban ban ka caliban has a new master get a new man sung by some one in a smooth light baritone voice well mr cathcart went pantomiming and contortioning about as if he were singing the song being asked to go into the auditorium to witness the illusion i went and immediately was surprised at the effect the singing was apparently being executed by the actor with gratifying applause while the real singer was there below the footlights in the orchestra with his back turned to the audience the absorbed attention of the audience was centered in the actor and his doings on the stage which naturally caused the association in their minds of the song with the character the following account relates to some events which m alexander 
before referred to was concerned in as they are of more than ordinary interest they have a place here without vouching for their strict accuracy he interested many savans among whom sir david brewster was one of the critical observers m alexander the famous ventriloquist had an extraordinary facility in counterfeiting all the expressions of countenance and bodily conditions common to humanity when in london his mimetic powers which he was fond of exercising both in public and in private made his company in high request among the upper circles the lord mayor of the city in particular received the ventriloquist with great distinction and invited him several times to dine at the mansion house but it unluckily happened that on every occasion when m alexander dined there he could not stay to spend the evening having contracted engagements elsewhere the lord mayor expressed much regret at this and the ventriloquist himself was annoyed on the same account being willing to do his best to entertain his guests whom the lord mayor had invited each time to meet him at last on meeting m alexander one day the lord mayor engaged him to dine at the mansion house on a remote day i fix it purposefully said his lordship at so distant a period because i wish to make sure this time of your remaining with us through the evening through fear of seeming purposefully to slight his lordship m alexander did not dare to tell the mayor that on that very morning he had accepted an invitation from a nobleman of high rank to spend at his house the evening of the identical day so unfortunately pitched on by this civic dignitary all that the ventriloquist said in reply was i promise my lord to remain at the mansion house till you yourself think a time for me to take my leave ah oh, well said the lord mayor and went off perfectly satisfied at the appointed day m alexander sat himself down at the magistrate's board never had the ventriloquist contorted himself with so much spirit and gaiety he insisted on devoting bumpers to each and every lady present the toasts went round the old port flowed like water and the artiste in particular seemed in danger of losing his reason under its potent influence when others stopped he stopped not but continued filling and emptying incessantly by and by his eyes began to stare his visage became purple his tongue grew confused his whole body seemed to steam of wine and finally he sank from his chair in a state of maudlin helpless insensibility regretting the condition of his guest the lord mayor got him quietly lifted and conveyed to his own carriage giving orders for him to be taken home to his lodgings as soon as m alexander was deposited there he became a very different being it was now ten o'clock but half an hour was left to him to prepare for his appointed visit to the duke of earl's soiree the ventriloquist disrobed himself taking first from his breast a quantity of sponge which he had placed beneath his waistcoat and into the pores of which he had with a quick and dexterous hand poured the greater portion of the wine which he had apparently swallowed having washed from his person all tokens of his simulated intoxication and dressed himself anew m alexander then betook himself to the mansion of the nobleman to whom he had engaged himself on the following day the fashionable newspapers gave a detailed account of the grand party at his grace the duke of earls and eulogized to the skies the entertaining performances of m alexander who they said had surpassed himself on this occasion some days afterwards the lord mayor encountered m alexander ah uh, how are you said his lordship very well my lord was the reply 
our newspapers are pretty pieces of veracity said his lordship have you seen the courier of the other day why it makes you out to have exhibited in great style last thursday night at his grace of earls it has but told the truth said the mimic what impossible cried the mayor you do not remember then the state into which you unfortunately got at the mansion-house and thereupon the worthy magistrate detailed to the ventriloquist the circumstances of his intoxication and the care that had been taken with him and the other points of the case m alexander heard his lordship to the end and then confessed the stratagem which he had played off and the cause of it i had promised said alexander to be with his grace at half-past ten i had also promised not to leave you till you yourself considered it fit time i kept my word in both cases you know the way the civic functionary laughed heartily and on the following evening alexander made up for his trick by making the mansion-house ring with laughter till daylight many anecdotes are told respecting m alexander's power of assuming the faces of other people at abbotsford during a visit there he actually sat to a sculptor five times in the character of a noted clergyman whose real features the sculptor was well acquainted when the sittings were closed and the bust modelled the mimic cast off his wig and assumed dress and appeared with his own natural countenance to the terror almost of the sculptor and to the great amusement of sir walter scott and others who had been in on the secret of this most celebrated ventriloquist it is related that on one occasion he was passing along the strand when a friend desired a specimen of his abilities at this instant a load of hay was passing along the temple bar when alexander called attention to the suffocating cries of a man in the centre of the hay a crowd gathered round and stopped the astonished carter and demanded why he was carrying a fellow-creature in his hay the complaints and cries of the smothered man now became painful and there was every reason to believe that he was dying the crowd regardless of the stoppage to the traffic instantly proceeded to unload the hay into the street the smothered voice urged them to make haste, but the feelings of the people may be imagined when the cart was empty and nobody was found, while Alexander and his friend walked off laughing at the unexpected result of their trick. Concluding Remarks The Art of Breathing, Speaking, and Singing It may surprise the reader to find the simple and natural act of breathing classed as an art implying that to breathe requires a method and a knowledge of certain rules to breathe is the first act of our existence and requires no knowledge whatever since it is an involuntary act of nature but nature very often acts imperfectly and the intelligent mind directs her instincts and improves her action an imperfect method of breathing is the fruitful source of innumerable complaints and in ninety cases out of a hundred lays the first seeds of lung disease very few people properly fill their lungs at each inspiration remember that the nose is the proper channel through which to inspire and the mouth to expire during the waking hours the nose alone both for inspiration and expiration during sleep only those who keep the mouth closed during sleep enjoy healthy and refreshing slumber a lung bath once a day will be found very beneficial to the health stand in the open air and firmly close the mouth take a long deep breath through the nostrils until the lungs are well filled then open the mouth and slowly empty this repeat this for ten minutes this i call a lung bath 
to acquire a good voice for speaking is simply to know how to use your voice properly to this end a knowledge of the construction of the vocal organs will be of great service but a perusal of the scientific books on this subject is very confusing to the unscientific reader i will endeavor to explain how to produce the voice in terms so simple as to be easily comprehended by all the vocal cords are situated in that part of the throat commonly called adam's apple the false method of all uninstructed beginners is to bring to bear upon these delicate cords a great and injurious strain. The complaint, called clergyman's sore throat, is the result of this improper method of speaking. Practice to speak distinctly without using these cords. Remember that the roof of the mouth is the sounding board from whence the voice should issue. The vocal cords will vibrate instinctively, but you must avoid all effort to use them. These remarks apply to the art of singing also, for singing is prolonged speaking, the sound being prolonged on the vowels only. Our readers will obtain a perfect knowledge of the construction of the organs of sound and speech by carefully perusing the following able and admirable treatise on the physical requirements of song, which we have been kindly permitted to reproduce from Lotus Leaves by its gifted author, Charles Inslee Pardee, M.D. It is frequently said of eminent singers that their vocal organs are of exquisite construction. The remark is so often repeated that we are led to regard it as the expression of a general belief that vocalists are endowed with unusual physical attributes, neither inherited nor to be acquired by the masses of mankind. It cannot in truth be said that this impression is entirely without foundation but if by the expression it is intended to convey the idea that the basis of vocalism is a larynx of peculiar anatomical form or of rare functional power, it may mislead us. Setting aside the singular mental and emotional bias which seems to be essential to the musical artists, and taking into consideration the physical requirements of song only, we have two factors which enter into its production namely the vocal organs for example the mouth larynx and trachea and the ear the action of the vocal organs is easily explained the wasted product of respiration the breath is forced through a chink in the larynx and sound is created while form and expression are given by the mouth that words are formed by the mouth without the aid of the larynx is a fact easily proven as every one knows that he can distinctly express himself in a whisper the larynx is essentially a double reed instrument the vocal cords being analogous to the reed of a musical instrument the vocal cords are thrown into vibration by the breath and sound is produced the pitch being determined by the rapidity or slowness of movement this in turn is regulated by the tension of the cords the sounds of the highest pitch requiring extreme tension sounds of the lowest pitch extreme relaxation of these organs the different positions of the cords are caused entirely by muscular action while the parts are at rest air passes in and out in the act of respiration causing no sound as then their relations are not favorable to its production thus the larynx is the organ of sound but the larynx and the mouth are the organs of articulate speech these organs are susceptible of the highest cultivation and their functional perfection can only be obtained by training 
it is gymnastic exercise of the muscles acting on the parts which is required systematic practice of their functional qualities subject to the will that is all within the register of his natural voice anyone can attain mechanical precision or vocal expression even the register may be increased by the simple expedient of exercise what then is so essential to the physical requirements of song that the few who possess it are regarded as phenomena it is an ear of exquisite function such as rarely exists the ear is as important as is the operator to the transmission of a telegram it is the conductor the critic witness the person whose deafness is of such a high degree that he cannot hear the sound of his own voice and listen to his harsh unmodulated tones witness the deaf mute mute only because he is deaf with vocal organs that are probably anatomically perfect but with no guide in that process of imitation which in the general way constitutes man's training from the imperfect articulation of the words papa and mama in babyhood to the highest form of vocal expression of our special senses the ear is the organ of tune its function is to receive the succession of sounds musical notes the various peculiarities of articulate speech and to measure the periods of silence it is the register of the properties of waves of sound the intensity quality and pitch conveying to the brain an impression of the relative intensity of the sound created by the firing of a cannon and of a pistol of the quality of the sound of a violoncello or of a violin the pitch of the soprano and bass voices if perfect in its functional property it registers the whole but if not either through irregular development or because its normal condition has been changed by disease it may do so but partially and the unfortunate possessor of such an ear particularly unfortunate if he desires to sing correctly ascertains that he is unable accurately to determine the pitch of certain sounds and that his most careful attempts to reproduce them result in discords moreover he may observe that he cannot appreciate the quality of sound physiologically considered the human ear is not a homogeneous organ but the different parts are for the appreciation of the different properties of sound and the absence of one part for instance that which registers the quality or the pitch would cause the disappearance of its peculiar function in view of this fact it would be interesting to collate the several opinions of notably just and impartial critics in regard to various vocalists to know if the tenor of criticism is in a singular groove if it has the appearance of being a certain formula or of particular bias the singer who is smarting under the infliction of partial and unjust criticism of a performance that he has perfected through years of careful training under the guidance of an exquisite ear may find courage in the reflection that in all probability his critic honest though he be has imperfect oral perceptions and is laboring under the disadvantage of performing work requiring the indispensable direction of an ear of faultless physiological attributes an ear that he does not possess that the author of the criticism is not prompted by any improper motive nor is he captious but is functionally incapable of receiving correct impressions a human ear of perfect functional attributes is something rare that competent authority von trolsch says 
i shall make too small rather than too large an estimate when i assert that not more than one out of three persons of twenty to forty years of age still possess good and normal hearing good and normal hearing in the sense of this paragraph means good enough for ordinary purposes it does not refer to that exquisite sensibility to all the properties of sound which is indispensable to the accomplished singer the author however touches the point if his estimate is approximately correct few of our race may aspire to the distinction of attaining preeminence in song my friend do you have a wish to become proficient in song do not concern yourself too much about your voice in the practice of your life you have imitated articulate speech with entire success and now reproduce it in creditable manner your vocal organs show their susceptibility to training and discipline and doubtless within the register of your voice may be trained to song provided you have the all-important guide have you that guide can you recognize the distinctive properties of sound do you appreciate the intensity the quality the pitch have you in perfection the three thousand nerve fibres of the cochlear portion of the ear each one of which vibrates synchronous to the sound of its own appropriate pitch if so you can succeed otherwise it would be as reasonable to expect of a blind man the reproduction of colour end of chapter six recording by lawrence trask interfaceaudio.com